0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is July the 25th, 2022, a Monday. It's uh, it's going to be a big week for big tech this week, Uh, Apple, Amazon, and Meta, three of the big five or six uh, major tech players, uh, particularly in the digital economy, are announcing their earnings this week. It will dramatically affect the broader economy because of their power. Many people in Silicon Valley think, of course, that that's a good thing. Not everyone, though, does. Um, A couple of months ago, I had a a law professor, U.S. law professor, Morris Stuckey, on the show, who, who makes the argument that the big tech barons at Meta and Apple and Amazon and, and, and Google are actually smashing innovation. They're not the innovators. I had a very interesting interaction with uh, Morris. He is the co-author of a new book, How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back. He's a law professor um, at, um, uh, at uh, uh, an East Coast University and the co-author of his book, uh, or the co-author of the book um, "How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back." There's another law professor, Ariel Israchi. He's a distinguished law professor at Oxford University, and I'm thrilled and honoured that uh, Ariel will be jo- is joining us from Oxford. Ariel, welcome. Uh, big, big week for uh, big week for big tech. Uh, it's always a big week, I guess. What would you? say to those people in Silicon Valley I'm talking to you from San Francisco I know you're in Oxford what would you say to those people who in Silicon Valley argue that it's the big players the Googles the Amazons the Apples the metas that drive innovation how would you respond to that
1: well hi and thanks for having me well They do drive innovation to some extent, but they also stifle plenty. And I guess this is the message of of our book. Um, No doubt uh, the the big tech barons uh, have a role to play, and they do play that role. And indeed, to some extent, we all benefit from their innovation. But to focus only on the innovation that they deliver um, gives you a very distorted view of what really happens. And what we highlight in our book is that while they invest in sustaining innovation in an attempt to improve their offering to us, they also stifle plenty of other innovation from disruptors that try to offer us other products, other goods, other services. Um, So I would say uh, that when we look forward to the future and we think about the scope of innovation and the nature of innovation, we actually have quite a bit to worry about.
0: Let's talk more specifically about the different sectors in the economy, Ariel. Later this week, I'm talking to Matthew Ball. He has a new book out, The Metaverse, and how it will revolutionize everything. One of the intriguing things about Facebook's reinvention is now they're calling themselves the meta, as if they want to take over the metaverse. Is this an example of big tech companies trying to essentially own the internet?
1: Well, it's a reflection of the whole idea of the ecosystem. Uh, So whether they want to control the internet or not uh, is, is a separate question. And to be honest, from a commercial perspective, I'm sure all companies will do whatever they can to control bigger chunks of the internet, because doing that, Um, increases the the profitability. But what it really reflects is that whereas the idea of the Internet is one that has often been associated with democracy, an idea of um, um, a landscape where anyone can access and all of us can have plenty of opportunities and choice, the reality is that for one reason or another, Eventually, we all gravitated towards a handful of gatekeepers, meta being one of them. And those gatekeepers uh, are very careful in designing their ecosystems in ways that do give them absolute control over who has access to those environments and on what terms. The metaverse will probably be one of the more advanced examples that we will face in the future, where not only sellers uh, will have to go through the gates that that are operated by Meta and users, of course, will do so, but also the nature of the environment will be one where a lot of the distortions that we're familiar with uh, will move a step further. So if you think, for instance, these days about us, Uh, searching online. And we all know that there are dark patterns and manipulations and there are abilities to target us. All of this uh, will go on steroids once you move into the metaverse because of the nature of of the platform. It's enough for you to look at some of the patterns that are registered by many of the leading um, tech barons to get a sense of where we're heading. And this is one of the things that we talk about in the book. Uh, We often associate innovation with um, positivity. Innovation is something we all treat as something that uh, will all help us uh, to gain a better future. Uh, And many times it is. But when you look at some of the technologies that are developed, uh, we refer to them as toxic uh, innovation. And the link we highlight is that when you don't have a competitive environment, where innovation is driven by a handful of dominant companies' monopolies, then the type of innovation they advance is not driven by the demands and desires of consumers, uh, but rather it is driven by the profit motive of those tech barons. Um, And a lot of the things around us, a lot of the new innovations, indeed to some extent satisfy our desires, but at a massive cost. A lot of it is about extracting extracting data from us, uh, targeting us, manipulating us. And that's a problem that we need to face. We all have to maybe be more honest about uh, what it is that we're getting from the market. Uh,
0: You wrote uh, another book with Maurice Starkey, Competition Overdose, how free market mythology transformed us from citizen kings to market servants. Is the problem, Ariel, the problem of the market? You're, of course, familiar with Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future, in which Thiel states the obvious, although it's quite a, a controversial observation, maybe one that most people don't have the nerve to say, that entrepreneurs by definition want to be monopolists because that reflects success. So is the problem with the market, Ariel?
1: So when you think about markets, uh, we all appreciate that we have imperfect markets around us. Of course, you know, we have markets with uh, dominance. We have markets with monopolies. We have some markets that offer us some level of competition. Uh, In competition, competition overdose, what we highlighted is that sometimes even when markets work, they don't necessarily deliver on their promise. So when you ask me, is the problem with the markets, um, there are two answers to that. The first one is yes, because the markets we have are imperfect, no matter who you ask. So if you look at the digital markets that we have, most of them, most sectors and more, most gates to those markets are occupied uh, by very few and very powerful companies. So those markets are characterized by market power, which means that by definition, you have companies that are able to behave to an appreciable extent, independently of us, of our desires, also independently of competitors. So certainly when you have markets such as the digital markets that uh, we all engage with on a daily basis, there is a problem in those markets because those markets have been already uh, dominated by some. Um, and in that reality, although there is competition, that competition um, is 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 just uh, something that affects really the the outskirts of of those markets, but doesn't really challenge those companies. The companies um, benefit from such hold over the market and the ability to distort the market dynamics um, that the way some people, some policy makers refer to them with the illusion that they are competitive markets is, is the problem that we have, which leads me to the second point, which is we have an ideal of competition. Our ideal is that in a perfect market, the dynamics of competition are so beneficial that we do not require any intervention. And indeed, you will often find policy makers in the US and elsewhere who would say, we need the smallest government possible. Let the market work its magic. Let the invisible hand work work its magic. Um, In competition overdose, we highlight instances where markets uh, don't perform even though we assume they do. Um, And I think in general, uh, what it means is that we have two problems. One is that sometimes our assumption as to the market is a bit naive. And two is that that assumption is applied to markets that most economists and most policymakers will tell you to begin with are very different from the markets uh, on which those assumptions were based. Um, I think it's unfortunate that um, this doesn't seem to affect some policymakers and some companies who continue to feed us with. Uh, I would say, ideological uh, claims that are completely detached from the market reality in which they operate.
0: We talked a little bit about Meta. That's probably one of the companies you're thinking about. What, what, are, what are the other companies that are peddling this ideology of the importance, the uniqueness, the, um, the, the way in which the market drives uh, innovation and progress? Another headline today is about Google who has now fired an engineer who claimed that its AI is conscious. Another interesting piece suggests that in a post row world that's in the United States, the, the future of digital privacy looks even grimmer. For many people, Google is the quintessential bad guy of big tech, not because they're worse than anyone else, they're no more or less evil, but because they know so much more about us because they are the original and still dominant big data company.
1: So, well, I, I think intuitively you mentioned Google and, and Meta, and these will be uh, two of, of the, the leading companies that many would think of when you think about the, the whole they have over the market. They're not the only ones. Uh, you also mentioned at the beginning of our talk, you made reference to Apple, to Amazon. And of course, these only focus on Western markets. If you look uh, to the East, there are other game makers and digital barons that control other uh, ecosystems. You also mentioned that they are not necessarily bad. And I I would like to stress that I absolutely agree with you. Um, There is this um, issue that those companies often, they are victim of their own uh, success in a way. So it is not that the individuals in those companies intend to harm us. Uh, But those individuals and those directors uh, need to feed the animal. They need to show their uh, stakeholders, their shareholders, uh, that they can generate value. And because of that, what you have are technologies that are naturally, almost as a result of the profit motive and the corporate uh, strategy, that are meant to increase power regardless of the impact. So if you think, you think about uh, the leaked documents from Facebook, or if you think about technologies that can destabilize our society, all those technologies and strategies are advanced regardless of their impact on our society. And one thing that is interesting is that those companies have to advance those technologies because they have to uh, ascertain their dominance and try and expand their kingdoms And in parallel to that, those companies will often engage in efforts um, to at least be seen as if they're trying to protect our privacy or they're trying to protect uh, freedom of speech or or any other elements that they are undermining. So you have this game where uh, if we look at Facebook, for instance, on one hand, the Facebook algorithm will promote hate speech, uh, will naturally, because of our human nature, will naturally promote more negativity because we react to negativity. It creates more engagement. Therefore, it creates more um, screen time. It creates more money. So on one hand, you have those powerful algorithms that really spread um, the, the, the problems that we have in society. And on the other hand, you have Facebook trying to provide a remedy without undermining the profit-making algorithm. So it's a it, you know, all these companies, on one hand, know that they're doing certain things that undermine our privacy, autonomy, um, breach sometimes our data or our freedoms, and at the same time, try to give us um, a few um, solutions—really uh, mid-term or very short-term solutions—just to show us that they are doing something to stop uh, the spread or or the impact that they have generated. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult choice for them, but one that at the end, when they are faced with a dilemma, I think when we look around us, we all see where it's heading. At the end of the day, for most of those companies, the profit motive and the pressure to generate value to their shareholders wins. And because of that, uh, what you see Uh, is the drive to advance innovation that works against our interest, is the drive to quash innovation by disruptors that might benefit us, is the drive to eliminate innovators that might offer us protection, might protect our privacy. And if we believe that by giving them the keys to our future, we are promoting innovation, uh, what we're trying to say in our book is that we are deadly wrong and we might pay the price. If you trust them to deliver on the promise of innovation, you will be very surprised when you find yourself with a distorted landscape where all the innovation is innovation that feeds their ecosystem, rather than a much wider spectrum of innovation, where we have choice and we have different types of innovation, some of which also distinctly benefit us.
0: Ariel, I don't think many people would disagree, but should Should we give all the moral responsibility to big tech? I mean, these guys are essentially aristocrats, for better or worse. They're not much different, I think, from 18th century aristocrats, particularly in pre-revolutionary France. There's an interesting piece today in the Wall Street Journal about Elon Musk ruining Sergey Brin's marriage. These are all multi-billionaires living incredibly privileged lives and behaving with the irresponsibility of aristocrats. Marie Antoinette famously said about the French people that let them eat cake. I'm sure Elon Musk and Sergey Brin say the same thing. They're not bad people, but they're not good people. What about, though, the responsibility of all of us? You talk about these ecosystems, and these ecosystems now are pretty well known. Anyone who uses the internet knows that Google for example has an ecosystem whether it's YouTube or the the search engine or the the mobile platform if you choose to use it you use these you use these these platforms these apps these engines for free and in and and, and we pay with our data there are options out there like DuckDuckGo, dot go that search engine where our data is not being essentially taken from us. DuckDuckGo has been around for 10, 15 years um, and it doesn't really grow. Where's the responsibility of, of Internet users? They're going to read books like yours. There are many books about how big tech barons are undermining innovation, undermining democracy. But what about the responsibility of Internet users themselves?
1: So you raise uh, quite a few um, issues, all of which are very interesting and, and, uh, and worth uh, a comment. I'll start from the end. There aren't many books that deal with um, the innovation story. Um, there are many books that deal with the competition story. And I think there is a consensus about the impact on competition and our welfare. Uh, there is still a wide belief by many that these companies are the engine of innovation. And therefore, we should continue to support them. More than that, for those who have a doubt, those companies will pepper the discussion with some claims that if you do anything to undermine their efforts, what you will find is that the East, the giants from the East will take over. So there is also an element of you know, Western society against anyone, anyone else. Um, so uh, so in that respect the in the innovation story is is certainly something that they were very successful uh, to put forward to begin with second issue is what is our responsibility and i think you make a very uh, good point now here when we talk about ecosystem one of the problems is that many of us deal with environments that we have actually relatively little choice. It is true that you might choose a different search engine, but the whole point of an ecosystem is that those companies purchase and acquire additional elements and bring them into the value chain. So it is actually quite difficult for you to operate. uh, And we mentioned an example in our book of what happens when you try to just steer away from, uh, from these giants. It is almost impossible in modern days to be able to use services, payment services, communication services, and not have to deal with those ecosystems and in a way uh, get sucked into the value chain. Then the other issue is, you know, what can we do? So you can certainly do certain things, but the idea that we control is exactly Uh, the idea that, that drives the claim that we should get more autonomy and we should get the tools to protect our interests. Many people, when we speak to them and we explain to them how from your mobile phone in your pocket to almost any appliance that you have, any smart appliance, data is being harvested without your knowledge. And even when it's with your knowledge, with your formal knowledge, it is often the case that that knowledge is just because you signed You clicked, I agree in terms and conditions. None of us read those terms and conditions. In fact, on purpose, many of those are so long that you will never notice the bits and pieces uh, within them that give um, those companies the right to harvest data, target you, sell your data, etc. So the ability that we have to protect our autonomy in in an environment where stealth and targeting is the norm is is limited. It's not that we don't have a responsibility. Of course we do. Um, but today, uh, advanced technology may enable companies to build a profile on you, even if you're not on one of those ecosystems. It's enough for me to understand who are your friends and have additional data points to actually understand uh, what it is that you're interested in and what are your weaknesses or what is your likely behavior. Technology is moving fast. Um, and that is also relevant when you think about the enforcement actions that we take. Many of them are not sufficient. And then, uh, lastly, uh, to the point that you started with, about what is the role of those companies? I think on a kind of a, 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 on the journey that we took as society, it's quite interesting. In 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 uh, feudalism, you know, we were all subjected to these massive barons. And then it took a long while for us uh, to create a free market where we we were basically released, we were sent free. And this is the whole idea Hayek uh, famously referred to us having to move outside that. And in many ways in our modern time, we opted voluntarily to create new barons um, that, that control. And we started by using them because they offer us services that we value. And indeed, platforms are efficient. We benefit from them. There should be no doubt, of course we benefit. We benefit from the internet, from so many things. But once we were hooked, once we took the internet, which is an open field, and we literally agreed on a map that takes us from one point to another, and we gave the power to certain entities to charge money from people, so they appear on that map, the game changed. And in a way, it is true and quite unfortunate that as society, from feudalism, we went into a concept of free market. And from that free market, eventually, we crowned new leaders. And once we crowned them, naturally, power gravitated towards them, up to the extent that now, um, you know, they control. Uh, an area, a digital area, where most of us spend most of our days. So, yeah, quite unfortunate to that in that respect.
0: Ariel, let's talk specifically about regulation. Interesting piece in the FT today about innovation in Europe and tech companies. You, of course, are in Oxford. You know the tech scene in Europe very well. Is the problem really the American Internet or perhaps the Chinese Internet? Is Europe pioneering? a responsible innovation? You don't see many examples of new innovative companies coming out of, of Europe, or, or maybe I'm wrong there. Is, is Europe the model for a responsible political regulation of big tech?
1: So this is, this is not a new argument. It's an argument that has been uh, um, mentioned quite uh, for many years now anytime Europe tried to intervene, uh, even if you go to the, you know, 10 years back, the the, the first Google case, the claim from the US was what you're doing, you're chilling innovation and you're chilling competition. And the proof is just look, where are all the big companies coming from? Uh, They're coming from the US. Uh, So your excessive regulation is is chilling the incentives of companies uh, to engage. Now, To start with, I think it's important not to have any doubt. Any enforcement regime has to be designed in a way that you try your very best not to chill innovation and not to chill competition. One of the tragedies of some cases is that where agencies try to do the right thing and protect us, while they do so, they actually send a signal to the market, to chill, the incentives of companies to innovate. So our aim is always to find this balance where we are able to only deter actions that we find problematic from a social perspective. Okay, but then the question is, so does it mean that Europe got it wrong in terms of regulatory regime? So, I mean, there are many ways to to look at it. The first one I would say is that the picture is not just about regulation. It's about access to funding. It's about dynamics. It's about um, uh, uh, workforce. Uh, it's 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 about much more than just one or another regulatory regime. But let's assume that it is about the regulatory regime. Then here, what you have is a race to the bottom. And think of it, a nice way to think of it is if you think about the international taxation. We know about tax havens. We know about some states in the U.S. where you pay less tax, and we know internationally about states where you pay less tax or you have less reporting requirements. Why is it? that some states engage in basically charging less money because in this race to the bottom, if I'm offering companies a much more hospitable environment, they will gravitate towards me. So I will still benefit. And as they move towards me, another state will give them an even better deal. Less tax, more grants, and less responsibility. So they move to the other state. And what you have around the world is a real problem. I mean, when we speak about many companies, not just the big techs, we all know that those companies generate billions and yet pay very little in terms of taxation because of their ability to benefit from this race between jurisdictions. The same, so I think here there there is very little controversy and indeed there are international discussions on how we, as society in general, can make sure that those companies actually pay taxes because those taxes are there to give us services. Uh, that's part of the idea. You know, That's how society so, should but, work.
0: Yeah, I, I take all these points, but are you suggesting then that Margaret Vestager, for example, in Europe is really a pioneer of this? Are you suggesting that the European model, which now in some ways seems to be being emulated by Lena Khan at the FCC in the U.S., is this the way forward? I know you don't just think regulation is the only fix, but it's an important piece of the fix, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So so my point, what I try to highlight with taxation, is that the same happens with regulating uh, big tech. The US traditionally had a very relaxed attitude towards these companies. And also in terms of antitrust enforcement, of course, enforced antitrust in some areas, but not when it came to market power. Very little action on that front. I think by doing that, they certainly contributed to many of those companies um, thriving in the US. But that came at a cost. And you mentioned Lina Khan, when you look now at the FTC and the Department of Justice, um, you certainly have a change in, in the tune, a change in approach. Something that is much more in line with what has been the approach in Europe, where the authorities say, well, now we appreciate that maybe we put too much trust in the market. Maybe our assumption that the market will self-correct, that disruptive innovation will just come out of nowhere and change everything, maybe that assumption was wrong. And Indeed, you have cases against Google, against Facebook, you have other cases. In that respect, um, I think what you see now is a certain acknowledgement from the US that approach taken by the EU uh, was probably uh, on point. Um, You
0: you talk about the race to the bottom, Ariel, but maybe in the United States we're seeing the reverse. Um, There was an interesting piece in the Washington Monthly um, earlier this year about uh, states, individual US states becoming laboratories of anti-monopoly. Some states, uh, particularly in the Northeast and in the West, are more aggressively going after these monopolists,
1: um, so it can go both ways, can't it? Yeah, and I, and and that's a very good a very good point. I mean, what you tend to see is that after limited enforcement, when we fail to enforce, then what happens is when there is a wake up call, we sometimes go the other end, and some would argue that we overcorrect on both ends, uh, and then again and again. What I would say is that part of what you see now is a political debate on the problem of bigness. You should not confuse the political debate with the antitrust debate that is a bit more nuanced or the debate on innovation that is a bit more nuanced.
0: Do you think, though, that uh, Khan's attempt to redefine antitrust in the
1: 21st century is right? I think she's certainly trying to cure... uh, a situation that, or a position that was created in the U.S. uh, that many would agree uh, was too relaxed. Uh, A situation where you uh, enabled or allowed consolidations, um, you allowed companies to engage in actions under certain theories of harm and under certain economic theories that were supposed to show us a certain benefit as consumers. That proved wrong. Uh, we now have an, a more concentrated reality, more concentrated markets, and less consumer welfare. We have less money in our pocket. Competition law is about us having more money, more choice. Didn't deliver. Didn't really work that way. It's not all bad, of course. I mean, we shouldn't. We should never take it to the extreme. You know, we get more technology, we get more other things. But the counterfactual, the alternative. Is a world where we still get that technology, but we get it on our terms. What about the role, uh, Ariel, of
0: of, of venture capital, which of course fuels, quite literally, it's the oil that fuels the innovation economy, for better or worse. Did a show last year with Sebastian Malaby, has a very interesting new book on venture capital called The Power Law. It's interesting that some of the most articulate and outspoken critics of big tech are venture capitalists themselves, people like... Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures, friends of mine like John Borthwick um, at Betaworks. What, what could the role be of, of VCs? After all, they've profited enormously from the success of the big tech. But at the same time, when you have these dominant companies, it becomes increasingly hard to make new investments in innovation.
1: Yeah, and for anyone who's active in that field, there is something we call the elephant trail. So the reality is that you will never, these guys will never invest in a company that sits on the elephant trail where the giants walk. So what happens is on one hand, they benefit, of course, from those giant companies, but they know, and they know it very well. And some of them say it openly, that because all the innovation that will get access to the market is innovation that works somehow into the the profit value or the value chains of those big giants, then anything that contradicts that is going to be quashed. So what you have is a massive elephant trail. No one dares to step on it. And even if the big giants don't necessarily tell these guys what to invest in, they certainly uh, send very clear signals of where the future money is going to be. And those guys who are generally there to make money, because this is their role, to make very wise investments that generate uh, handsome returns, um, operate accordingly. They're not there to promote our social interest. They're not there to promote human prosperity. They're there to promote income because they have to be accountable to their shareholders or their group of stakeholders. So what they do is they react and they react by simply looking where the giants walk and then they invest only where they see likelihood. And because of that, if you're a disruptor these days, good luck getting some money. If you're a disruptor that is trying to challenge the metaverse, your disruptor that is trying to maybe undermine the ability to target us when it comes to advertisement, your disruptor who has a new payment system that you think could destabilize. Good luck trying to get money. And even if you got an investment, good good luck trying to get into the market and trying to get enough traffic that would actually enable you to achieve scale that creates some level of profitability. The reality is that without some regulation, as we now have in Europe, that ensures access, that prevents companies from self-favoritism, companies that are vertically um, uh, structured from favoring their own operation. Without that, you have no chance in entering the market. And even when you enter the market, because those companies maybe are forced to give you access, because they control the interface, they can put enough friction between us, the users, and your services and clear any friction between us and their services So we will naturally gravitate to their services.
0: It is a a vicious cycle, as you say. The IPO market is still rather weak. So VCs only invest in companies that get acquired by the big tech giants, which in turn only adds to their power and perhaps ultimately smashes innovation. Ariel, you mentioned um, access. Your Oxford colleague, I'm sure you know his work and you know him, Victor Meyer, Schoenberger was on the show recently talking about what he calls free access. He has a new book out, Access Rules, freeing data from big tech for a better future. Victor's very much on the same page as you, although he's not a lawyer. I think he works at the Oxford Internet Institute. Are you a big fan of Victor's idea of free access? Is this an important piece of your fix?
1: So it's it's not a question of being a big fan, like like anything in this area. Yeah, and it's not just his, of course. I mean, these yeah, yeah. ideas are owned by everybody. No, 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 it's not. What I meant is that uh, the, the idea itself is, is certainly one way forward, but almost all the solutions in this area are nuanced. What do I mean by that? If you require a company that worked endlessly to create value in data, to give away that data, that's exactly what I refer to as sending the wrong incentive and resulting in it losing um, any motivation to invest in providing us services so yes free access uh, mm-hmm. intra- interoperability all these elements are crucial element that we are discussing as relevant to ensure that power shifts back to us but as we do that what you want to do is not go from 0 to 100 no to uh, or to the same extent, not to say it's either nothing or all, but what you want to do is to keep enough incentives uh, for companies to have the incentive to provide us with uh, augmentation of data, with with relevant data services, but at the same time give us control. And that can be by shifting uh, the ownership uh, of data by enabling us to get a fair share of data, by providing us with better information and greater transparency as to what happens to our data. So there are many ways of achieving um, that goal. When you say free access for data, um, the the idea itself certainly, I think, is one that many would agree with. How you go about this uh, is a tiny bit more nuanced, not something that we can discuss now, but I just want to highlight that. It's not that I would support uh, stripping companies of their assets just because we can.
0: Ariel, let's end with some innovation. Your book, um, you've co-written How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation, How to Strike Back, is not anti-innovation. It's seeking to figure out new ways of building perhaps a fairer, more democratic, more accessible, more accountable innovation economy. And I thought the most innovative piece of your book is your focus on the city. Uh, We've done a number of shows on the city. We did one, for example, with Edward Glazer from Harvard University, one of the great writers on city life and the value of urban life in the 21st century. Why for you is the city important as an alternative platform or ecosystem for rebuilding the innovation economy? Why is that another way of of thinking a a rather original way, not one just simply relying on regulation
1: and punishing big tech. So the the starting point is to try and counter the ideological platter that is often advanced by by big tech uh, companies, where they position themselves as the key to any um, future in which Uh, the West um, is leading on, on innovation. and What we try to highlight is that when you follow that narrative and you rely on very few dominant companies as the key to your future, what you have is a very narrow path of innovation where we don't benefit from. On the other hand, and this is where the city comes in, if you think about an environment that has been shown um, in many papers and and, and, and research uh, uh, kind of I- initiatives has been shown to offer much wider range of innovation, more sustainable innovation, uh, heterogeneous type of innovation, then what you do is you just change the horse on which you gamble. Rather than think that if you want to advance something, you have to go straight to one of the leading companies, think about cities, think about the infrastructure, think about that as the engine for the future. And increasingly, there is a realization that cities, as they grow wider, generate more innovation. As they grow wider, they generate this heterogeneity, which actually gives us uh, elements that are very crucial for our future. And because of that, uh, toward the end of the book, when we're thinking about different policies, and we speak about policies when it comes to regulation, but also policies on how can we support more innovation, one of the things we try to highlight that when you have, if you think about the US, if you have the federal government, and the federal government wants to advance something, try to advance it through the roots. Try to advance it by looking at where it is that the innovation needs to go and actually let those elements build the innovation through hubs of innovation, through means that are decentralized in essence, and this will give you a much wider range of innovation. This will create much more disruption, something that we all benefit from.
0: I, I take the point, and it's a really interesting argument, um, Ariel, and, and I think this will be my, uh, my final comment. But um when... By pouring resources, capital into New York or Boston or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Charlotte, aren't you also compounding the political divisions, the cultural crisis in a country like America, where the city and um, the countryside are at such cultural and economic odds?
1: So... You know, we sometimes in Europe, when we speak about regulation, we speak about smart regulation, and I would just borrow that. And I would say smart uh, investment in cities. Investing in cities is not about just taking a, a, a bit of money and throwing it at a city. It is about thinking about what it is that you're trying to advance. So I think you're right. There are some problems that are associated with cities or regional clusters. But this can be addressed. And actually, this can be addressed as you try to encourage innovation. You can also use that to regenerate certain areas. But what it does require is for policymakers to make knowledgeable decisions. Policymakers, when they decide what to do with your money and my money, which is basically public money, what we say is if you think carefully about how you structure your incentives, if you think carefully about who you give the money to and what do you ask them to do with it, you can gain, gain more for your money. That's that's the basic.
0: Well, a very, very nuanced um, approach to an incredibly important subject. Um, Marie, uh, Ariel Ezraici, Morris, uh, and your, your co-author, Maurice uh, Stuckey, uh, your new book, How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation, How to Strike Bats, a really important, interesting book. It's not just pro-regulation or anti-big tech. It addresses the the really big issue. So congratulations, Ariel, on this new book. What else are you reading these days um, to keep you
1: entertained or informed or in touch? (laughs) Well, actually, just now I'm reading a book that is, is quite interesting. It's called Extraordinary Popular Delusions. And that's, you know, how we always talk about the wisdom of the crowd. It, it mm. points a little bit about uh, to the opposite. And this is just linked to behavioral studies that we're running here in Oxford at the moment on the ability to manipulate us and use dark patterns. And I just found it to be I I, w- I would say it's not the, the most accessible book, but it's it's quite fascinating. And who's it by? The... Sorry. who Who is the author? Uh, Charles McKay. Yeah, it's a um, classic.
0: What is it? An 18th century, uh, 19th oh, or 18th yeah, yeah. century it's
1: it's, 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 yeah, it's it's a great book it's,
0: on popular delusions. And I guess uh, your book, uh, your new book, uh, Ariel, is also
1: in a way. To some extent, about- yeah, to some extent, it's not that far.